0: Hello everyone and welcome to Manufacturing the Future. I'm Jim and I'll be your host for what it will be a fascinating hour talking about industrial automation. Now I'm with Joe Campbell from Universal Robots. Now, Joe's head of a Strategic Marketing and Applications Development for Universal Robots North America. Joe's a 35-year industry veteran in the robotics and factory automation industry, and prior to joining Universal, Joe's president of sales and marketing for Swiss-based gantry robot and track manufacturer Gödel. Previous assignments included executive roles with ABB, KUKA, AMT, and ADEPT. Joe's a graduate of the University of Cincinnati. He's a regular speaker and lecturer in trade shows, industry events, and manufacturing symposiums. Joe, thanks for joining us. Jim, I am very happy to be here. Uh, Joe, robotics, specifically for industrial applications. There are few industries I can think of which have been so anticipated, so predicted by mass media, by everyone. I mean, robots will replace people. This has been something we've been talking about for for decades in the industry at this point. Do manufacturers know what they want and what they need in process automation using robots?
1: Well, I think they do, and I actually think they're fighting a different kind of problem today. Um, Right now, we have a labor shortage in manufacturing. Um, It's pretty significant. Now, the COVID crisis has obviously impacted that, but nonetheless, if you go to any job board in any manufacturing area of the country, you will find hundreds and hundreds of job openings for machine operators, machine tenders, welders, etc. So right now, the biggest challenge
0: for manufacturing is to staff their manufacturing floor. This thing started in, uh, from a production standpoint, say 1961. It was a New Jersey die casting plant, General Motors plant, basically. Uh, die casting is a perfect application. Parts come out of the press red hot, very, very difficult to handle at that point. So that old Unimate basically was simply programmed to reach in, pull the part out, drop it into a basket. Uh, It's that kind of machine tending role is still something I see uh, industrial robotics used for a lot today. But I see a lot of it in packaging as well. Is that still the soft spot? Is that the entry point for companies that that want to automate? Do you start them with machine tending and packaging?
1: Well, it depends on the operation and what processes they have. But uh, in general, we're always looking for the dull, the dirty, and the dangerous. Right? The application you just described kind of touches all three. but in it it's not difficult to find applications in any kind of manufacturing plant today. Um, you know, the challenge, to go back to the labor issue, the challenge that we have is not um, is not just the shortage of labor, but it's a demographic issue that's going to carry forward for a long, long time. Um, old guys like like me, maybe you, you're a little bit younger, but but the boomers uh, are retiring at the rate of ten thousand per day right? And that big generation is is departing manufacturing. Um, at this point, about 27% of manufacturing workforce is 55 or older. Wow. That's a staggering number. It is. And it's compounded because the younger generations, whatever label you choose to put on them, they really don't want that dull, dirty, or dangerous job, right? They don't find it fulfilling. And so it's very difficult to recruit you know new talent into the manufacturing field so that's my number one is let's go find the dull dirty and dangerous and automate it regardless of how simple it may be
0: now it's it's funny you mentioned i visit a lot of factories around the world and in in many maybe even most applications where i see industrial robots in use um, they have tend to build processes and lines around the automation so it's a situation where often you see i guess because the guarding necessity to guard this thing to keep people away you tend to see it in in cells and then there's a lot of conveyors and a lot of, of motion of assemblies and product from sort of one cell to the other. And then off and on to then manual processes where workers work with stuff at this point. Uh, you're heavily involved in, in cobots. Is Tell me a little bit about cobots, basically. Are we at that point where literally a worker will stand on the line and literally to his or her right shoulder, there's going to be a machine doing something and then another human being beside that?
1: Absolutely. That's, that's happening today. Over 80% of the robots that we ship are operating in full collaborative mode which means they can actually share a common workspace with a skilled human operator. Uh, It is extremely common. You know, the old form, the traditional form of automation was what I call um, all or nothing, right? When you had a, a 10 step process, you had to automate all of it or the project wouldn't justify because of the heavy guarding and the density of robots. You certainly couldn't have a human operator working on that one process that was so difficult or demanding. Uh collaborative technology is what we call incremental. I don't care if you've got a 10-step process, let's go find one that's challenging, demanding, dull, dirty, or dangerous, and let's automate that one. And it can be side-by-side with your skilled operators.
0: Cobots, this is obviously the future of robotics because the guarding's expensive and it's, it, it, it's awkward. It's What about the regulatory side of this? I mean, um, uh, OSHA is a four-letter word for, for most manufacturers that uh, in, in my experience. And of course, they're just doing their job and, and ev- everybody wants safety. Uh, I recall one case in particular of a, a line worker who had a rubber bladed fan blowing cool air on her face and OSHA came in and rejected that because the fan blades weren't guarded. Uh, the fact that the fan blades were not intended to be guarded because they're, they're they're made of rubber was irrelevant because the rules specified that it should be guarded at that point. Is 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 the regulatory environment? Are they fully up to speed with cobot with cobots? If I drop one on my line tomorrow at that point, am I going to have a problem with uh, with OSHA or insurer? I think in the last uh, five to
1: seven years, um, all the agencies have really come up the the learning curve uh, very very quickly. Um, you know, the the cobot performance is actually governed by an ANSI standard. Um, that's in 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 place around the world. And it's um, it's well-documented, well-published. And I think the regulatory agencies have a full understanding now. Um, you know, the key is you have to perform a risk assessment. Um, our director of compliance always says there is no out-of-the-box safe robot, collaborative or not, depends on what you put on the end effector, right? If you're going to put a, a knife blade to do trimming, That's not intrinsically safe, right? So there is a process to work through the risk assessment and determine how best to deploy the robot.
0: Now, the robots themselves have become smaller, uh, easier to use, lower in cost. Uh, uh, Back in the day, I'm thinking 30 years ago, uh, uh, if I worked at uh, Hamtramck Assembly or Willow Run, you know, you're you're uh, Michigan-based, you you might have an in-house team that could integrate a robot for you. Uh, more likely than not, if you're any smaller than the size of a, of, the, of the big three, you you hired an integrator. Is that still the way that, that manufacturers go to market with this? Do they approach integrators and say, make a recommendation for me? Or, they, or do they reach out to firms like Universal Robots and say, I need a robot? Uh,
1: yes, yes, and yes. So there are still a great deal of engagement from the integration channel. Um, and there are actually the determination of whether a project should go through an integrator or not is a business decision. And it's based about the risk of the project and the time frame, resources available, et cetera. Um, there definitely is a growing do-it-yourself movement. And it's taken hold particularly in the small and medium enterprise. Um, and these are companies that really dominate the manufacturing uh, field here in North America. Uh, there's about a quarter million manufacturing entities in North America and about 90% of them have less than 100 employees. This segment was has historically been underserved by traditional automation. Uh, cost, complexity, uh, requirement for specialists, special programming, uh, specialized engineering. And today, there are case after case of self-deployed robots, do-it-yourself projects that are done very, very successfully by small companies. In fact,
0: that's been a key part of our growth, the growth of our company, is in this small and medium enterprise space. I think a lot of smaller firms would be surprised to hear that because I think there's a general impression out there that these these things are are, are complex, uh, difficult to program. And smaller manufacturers, of course, they are always up against that challenge of, you know, I've got in-house people that can program tool paths on a machine tool. Uh, I don't want to have to train somebody up for six months or a year with a teach pendant to figure out how to program the robot. I just need the damn thing to work. Is it it easy to learn to the point now where you don't need to basically invest that kind of massive resources to to bring an expert up?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So, and this is one of the areas that Universal really excelled at. Our founders took a completely different look at the industry. And as you noted at the front end, I mean, I came from the traditional side of automation where i've been a long time and i was really just really surprised what i found here at universal Uh, so first of all the operator interface and the programming interface is extremely easy to use very very intuitive it's a completely different look at how you set up and program a robot we also have an online academy where we have actually trained over a hundred thousand people in the operation and programming of our robots And that has been extremely successful. And as you said, the small business person can't afford to take half his manufacturing staff and send them off to get educated on robots. This way, they can do it online. They can do it at off hours uh, quite successfully. And it's really changed the dynamic of how
0: easy it is to bring automation into a company. Joe, you're talking about a world where you're, um, if the integrator is not absolutely essential and smaller firms can go ahead and they can uh, can dive in themselves, uh, I'm wondering how they approach the process. Uh, All I'm thinking of is um, historically, I've, I've seen circumstances where this has been attempted by smaller firms where they overspend on the robot, they underspend on training, fixturing, uh, uh, end-of-arm tooling, yeah, essentially. And then and then after the fact say, gee, this thing is going to cost 40% more than we originally budgeted to get it up and running. Is that still a risk? Is there a factor of, of, of users not apportioning the budget where they need to?
1: Uh, I think there always is. And I think when we start working with a company who does not have any kind of robot automation deployed, um, I still refer back to the start with the simple, please. Do not come and pick the most complex project and say, boy, if I can do that one, I can do anything. It's not the right approach. So start simple. Um, we have a couple tools that actually can help as well. Uh, we have an application risk scorecard that is really, it's a, it's a great tool to use internally or with your integrator of choice to walk through the application and understand where the risk points are. And even if you don't have experience in robotics, you can use this checklist to really understand where you're gonna pick up risk in this project. And if there's a certain amount of risk, you may prefer to go through an integrator rather than try to do it yourself.
0: Uh, Joe, we'll link to that checklist. Uh, It's, would you recommend typically that uh, a first time user start with the application that makes them the most money or the one which has the highest rate likelihood of success out of the box?
1: Always start with success. Always start with success. And again, I think the other thing to, to note is it's, it's, uh, it's not hard to get a good ROI with a properly conceived collaborative robot project. We routinely see projects going in, total cost, programming, installation, mounting, end-of-arm tool, $75,000. Now, the average cost for a manufacturing employee is slightly above $75,000 with when you burden the job uh, properly. So it's not hard to get good payback. Uh, we routinely see payback in under a year. We've got a couple cases where it's measured in a matter of two or three months to pay off the robot uh, installation, which is incredible.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, that kind of payback, obviously the automation would be a no-brainer. It, uh, a question about the custom versus general purpose solutions here. Historically, when you automated a process, it was, they're essentially all custom solutions. Whether it was a packaging at the end of the line, whether it was assembly or machine tending, you sort of, you, 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 you built the machine into a system which did one thing and did it really well and did it, you know, uh, 10,000 times an hour. And and then when you were done, then you were done, and you bought another system here. Um, the industry is talking about uh, more human-like, more universal solutions, even putting robotics onto AGVs and and making them portable, so you can sort of plug them in anywhere on a line at, at some point. Is that is that going to happen in a cost-effective way for smaller manufacturers? Or are we going to see that only at the sort of the Apple Foxcons of the world?
1: No, you actually see it very much in the small manufacturer. Anybody really that has a, a high mix, low volume uh, model for their business. Could be a contract machine shop, contract welding shop, assembly, packaging, et cetera. Um, We call the concept robot as a tool. You have other tools at your disposal and you deploy them where you need them in your manufacturing line. Why not the robot? Again, traditional automation, the robot is hard mounted to the floor. It's hard mounted in front of one machine. It's safety guarded in front of one machine, which means you have to have enough volume of parts that the robot machine tandem can handle to pay back the project cost. With the collaborative technology, because it's so easy to redeploy, and it really is, um, we have many customers now who actually put robots on carts, and depending on their production mix for the day or week, they will actually move the robot to one machine or another and set it up very quickly. And it's uh, it is very successful. It actually makes the robot investment pay back much much quicker, because it's constantly in operation. Again, we call this robot as a tool. It's been supported by third-party companies that have actually come out with building blocks that enable this. So, for example, there's a company called ProCobots that makes a machine tender. It, it's a it's a wheeled base with robot mounting in a series of drawer magazines to hold finished and blank parts, right? Designed specifically for the small footprint machine tool industry of which uh, very, very common. Uh, and that's a great example how easy it is now to do these flexible installations.
0: Are you finding in the industry uh, a trend toward buying robots with universal grippers or or automation house supplied end of arm tooling or is is, or is custom EOT the, the, um, the trend? Well, custom EOT is
1: sometimes required, but it's expensive, right? It's expensive in terms of time, uh, engineering cost, uh, and manufacturing cost. I think the biggest trend that we see is a, actually something that we started. Uh, it's our program called UR Plus. And so basically, we have a series of partners to make peripherals and accessories for our robots. And it's like the App Store they develop the product and then submit it to us for testing and validation. And then once certified, we know that that product will work with our robot. It's compatible from a mechanical sense, controls, electrical, and software. And so consequently, that really strips out the complexity and risk of -of end-of-arm tools. Uh, Right now we have over 250 components in the UR Plus program. And we have actually over 30 application kits, which are kind of higher order solutions for things like you know,
0: finishing or sanding or welding. What sort of accuracy repeatability for say a typical light assembly operation can, can, can a user expect? I, I've seen some applications where the hope was you could eliminate high fixturing costs by, by, or eliminate fixturing altogether with a highly precise, highly repeatable machine. But in some cases, I, you know, if it's plus or minus a quarter of an inch, you're, you're, you still need a fairly tight fixturing solution to, to drop the part and hold it while you do something. You give us a ballpark sense of, of, for a typical sort of line co-op application, you're talking about what sort of you know positioning accuracy the user can expect. The same that you would find
1: in traditional automation, right? There's no difference. There's no difference whatsoever. And you've got the same tools to support the repositioning of parts. Um, again, part of this UR Plus program, we probably have 15 different vision systems that are plug and play compatible with our robot. So you still have the same tools, you still have the same challenges, but they're all roughly the same performance metrics. Now, there are some ultra, ultra, ultra high precision robots uh, that you might find in electronic assembly. Um, you know That's not the field that we're playing
0: in, but in the general market, we'll stand with anybody. Uh, you mentioned machine vision, uh, inspection. Uh, I'm starting to see a trend now, people more and more using automation using robots for quality purposes for for, for QA purposes at this point. Uh, is it is machine vision the future of of line inspection? Are we going to see something where we we replace the individual with the micrometer or the or the dial indicator, and we simply have a camera stuck on the end of an arm that looks at the part? Well, we're seeing it in a couple of different places.
1: Um, so first of all, Cobots are perfect to manipulate a vision camera over complex assemblies to do inspection. Because, right? again, they don't have to be guarded. It can be right out on the line. Your human operators can work in close proximity. Um, and there are a number of companies that offer that kind of solution. Um, and, and I think th- the second point we see is there's a lot of metrology applications where the robot is actually carrying a very, very high-precision metrology head. Um, and in one case, we've got a partner called NewScale that actually uh, has a gripper that is also also a very very precise micrometer, if you will. So as it picks up the part, it can measure IDs and ODs very very precisely, uh, all in line and all part of the process.
0: Now it's uh, it's funny how whenever you talk about robotics, you end up talking about end of arm tooling. It's amazing how you know the gripper becomes so much a part of that of of the conversation. It, it historically, I've seen a lot of, of of early applications in packaging. Because it's relatively simple to pick up a complete assembly and stick it into a box, you know, and then and 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 close the lid. At this point, uh, further upstream in the line, often there's some fairly delicate things that need to happen about this sensitive stuff. Is that uh, we've heard a little bit of force feedback technology, this kind of thing. You mentioned that the idea of taking a cobot and rolling it on a cart from station to station. Can you use the same machine with similar end of arm to- tooling to do delicate and fragile tasks on one end, and then to pick up you know 15 pound units and drop them in a box at the other? Yeah, absolutely. Happens all the time. In fact, it's uh, part
1: of the UR Plus program. We have partners like ATI who make tool changers specifically for uh, the UR collaborative robots. So tool changing makes life very easy to go from application to application. Um, I also think we are seeing a whole new range of -of end-of-arm tools specifically designed to handle ultra-fragile Um, uh, products. I think uh, soft robotics was a pioneer in this area. Uh, They're part of our program and others such as
0: PIAB are developing products at the same time. Uh, Joe, there used to be a rule of thumb that um, um, actually with, with any sort of assistive device, let alone robotics in this case, is that the smart engineer basically overrated the machine or underrated their application, given themselves about 20 25% in hand. And there the idea was to never run the machine at the extreme limits of its rated capability. Is that rule still true?
1: Absolutely. That's part of that risk, uh, the risk scorecard. Uh, my, my recommendation is don't go above 30% of rated speed. Don't go above 30% of rated work envelope. Uh, don't go above uh, 70% of uh, payload. Um, and if you are careful in those areas, you're gonna reduce your risk of your project. As you said, the problem is, you know, in too many cases, we're designing automation when we really don't even know what the final part design looks like. Uh, very common in automotive, right? The parts are are being designed concurrently with the automation. So if you make an assumption that you can operate at 90% payload, you're probably going to get surprised at the end.
0: Yeah. yeah it's, uh, robotics says there's a fascinating little sort of catch 22, kind of a negative feedback loop you can fall into, I've noticed, where if, if you, you underrate or overrate the machine for the capability, sometimes you're moving up to the next class of machine, which is larger. And larger generally means larger inertial masses it means it's slower at the same time so we'd like a small lightweight machine if possible for speed but at the same time to, for that to, to do that risk mitigation maybe you're moving to a larger slower machine a larger slower machine it has roi implications at the same time so it's it's it seems to me that if you're if you're the engineer specifying this you got to walk a bit of a tightrope in figuring how how low in cost can I produce a machine that's high enough in performance that actually will not fall into that trap you're talking about of of buying a machine that can't on the margin can't do it?
1: Well, that's where that's where you have to look at risk mitigation. And if you say, you know, I'm I I really don't want to go to this next bigger model. I want to stay in our case with a with a UR five. I don't want to go to the UR ten. Right. Well, what can you do to assure yourself you're going to fit in the five kilo payload capacity? Right. Can you can you actually get a final part? Can you get a gripper, right? Can you make it work? And that's what—that's kind of the back and forth that you have to go through. The, the challenge is, and I think you've been around long enough, you've seen it. The manufacturers don't always have that flexibility to give the integrator or give the robot or gripper company that kind of leeway, right? They have to make a decision with incomplete information. And our recommendation is if you're
0: backed into that corner, give yourself some room. Joe, human fingers are still probably the best end effector around at this point. Is, there, is, is, is it a point where it's worth talking to a manufacturer and saying, listen, talk to your design people. Can you redesign a part or assembly to make it easy to automate? Uh, it's it's really hard for a robot to reach in, in a right angle and then use 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 a forefinger and thumb and thread in a cap screw in a, into a blind hole at this point. So is there is is this something where is does holistic application of automation have to work its way right back to the design process before you even put the robot in? It does,
1: but the other point is remember the whole concept of incremental automation. If putting that cap screw in is one of the most difficult precision movements in the whole process of assembly. Get your best skilled human operator on it. Let the robots take everything else, right? That's, that's, and again, I think that's the one of the things that we see. We spend a lot of time talking to manufacturing engineers about resetting and rethinking their view of automation and how to deploy it and how to look for problems. You don't have to look for a million dollar problem. Look for the $75,000 problem, solve that one, and then go find another one, and then go find another one. And if again this particular example, if that cap screw is the most difficult thing in this weird assembly, and your designers say I'm not going to redesign the product, okay, then we're going to have a skilled human
0: operator do this one. Joe, the um, when you talk to the the uh, the EOT community, the end tooling manufacturers, quite naturally the argument is is that our customers spend too much on the robot and not enough on the on the tooling. And they also make that, that physics-based argument, which says that, you know, inertial forces matter, and it's worth spending another 5,000 bucks to take two ounces of weight out of the gripper, and to hell with what the rest of the, the, the mass, of the assembly is. And, and of course, they want to go to carbon fiber, and they want to use exotic materials, titanium, and things to actually, you know, to shave that, that incremental weight, you know, to, 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 to stop that, that inertial problem down there. Is that, is, is that a situation where, you need to go to the tooling manufacturer first before the robot manufacturer? Or can they actually just, just say, you know what? Um, tooling is a is a controllable problem as long as we have a robot which has repeatability and, and accuracy that we need.
1: Yeah, I think, I think there, there are so many choices now in the pairing of robots and end-of-arm tools that I don't think that's an issue. I mean, definitely on the extremes, you're gonna find that. But again, our view is there are so many middle of the bell curve applications that can be solved and generate very quick roi that we don't have to worry about the fringe of the bell curve right now And in, in fact as a as a manufacturing company you're you're far better off to continue to pound automation to solve
0: your labor issues solve your quality issues and stay in the middle of the bell curve joe the smaller mid-sized manufacturers that we're talking about you know the real heart of, of the american industry uh is there a trend are you seeing a standard first use for robotics or a standard sweet spot? Is it packaging? Is it assembly? Is it it machine tending? Are you seeing some place which is always the first place you put the the robot in?
1: It depends on the customer and what their pain point is. I mean, if you're a contract machine shop, the first entry point is gonna be loading and unloading that machine tool. You probably have a skilled CNC programmer standing in front of that tool, He or she does the setup and then does the load and unload. And that is just a terrible waste of a skilled resource, in my opinion. And so if you have a machine shop, that's where you start. If you're a contract packager, you're going to look at packaging for sure. Um, If you're doing complex assemblies, but you have to get them off the end of the line, you'll look at at case packing and palletizing. Uh, So it really depends on the company and what your pain points are. Uh, I'll give you another example that I find so interesting. It's some, a space that I knew nothing about uh, two years ago, and that is the case goods manufacturing, your kitchen cabinets, right? So in that universe, the most difficult job to fill is the sander, right? The s- skilled cabinet builders are very skilled, and they do not want to do sanding for eight hours a day, right? That's just, and it's a waste of their skill. Sanders, it's a difficult position to hire. It is dull. It is dirty. And it is to a certain degree dangerous. And in that community, that's what they want to automate first.
0: No, that's interesting. Now, it's, I think at the end-of-arm tooling for sanding, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen in that industry some fairly sophisticated uh, equipment designed specifically for sanding. In the case of a robot, obviously, it's gotta be something small and light enough you put on the end. Are you gonna put an orbital sander in, uh, clipped onto an end-of-arm tool and just turn it loose on a cabinet? Go ahead. Again, I ch- challenge everybody, all your listeners, go
1: to the universal-robots.com website, go look at the UR Plus pages, and you'll see an amazing array of process and effectors, including sanding. Uh, we've got a great solution from a longtime partner called Robotique. Uh, they have, they have uh, taken a sanding head. It's very light duty and still very powerful. Uh, and they've coupled it with very easy to use software. They can actually do a wonderful demo to set up the programming of a contoured wood, wooden chair, like you'd find at IKEA. That can be a 10 minute programming job with their software. Uh, And they've got an orbital sander that is flexible. It also happens to leverage the built in
0: force torque sensing that we have in our robot. So, yep, they're there, and there are more coming. Uh, Joe, you mentioned machine tending as a sweet spot, and I've seen a lot of machine tending applications, specifically around machining centers now, especially as the machine tool community now is moving toward this sort of done-in-one philosophy of uh, you're not going to have three or four ops downstream, we're going to try and do everything inside the machine and just yank it out. Um, Now, machine tool manufacturers, they're big on attempting to sell machine tending as part of a package. And one of the things, of course, they they promote is that that is a risk reduction strategy because you're you're purchasing the machine tending robot from the same company that is selling you the machine tool, so you know they're going to work together. Is that is that something that you have to do, or can can a, a manufacturer say no? You know, I'm I'm comfortable with my current brand of of robot, be it Universal or another brand here, and I'm gonna I'm gonna implement that for machine tending too.
1: You'll see it you'll see it in both uh, both scenarios. Um, so first of all, we work directly with many of the machine tool manufacturers. And actually, uh, their distribution channel is quite often where the automation is added. Uh, so, for example, we work uh, very closely with Herco and some of the Haas factory outlets. Uh, so that's one choice. The second choice is we've got a whole family of integrators. We, I have coined the phrase lean integrators because they're typically you know, smaller entities. It's you know, 10 or 15 people. It's 5,000 square feet. And they tend to focus on a given application area. So in this case, we've got a number of these lean integrators that focus on machine tending. And believe me, they know it top to bottom. And at that
0: point, I think there's, there's very little risk for the buyer. Joe, we're bumping up against the clock. We're right out of time. i have got time for one more question. And, and I, I think it's an important one, one I always ask in this. For a someone, a manufacturer, that, that small or medium sized manufacturer who's new to automation at this point, what are the questions that they need to ask? What's the information they need to bring to you, for example, to, to to start this process in a sensible way? Well, I
1: think the good news is um, they don't have to know what questions to ask because they can actually come to us or one of our distrib- distributor partners. Um, and we will actually come in and put the robot on the ground in front of them and let them understand how to program it. And we can actually guide them. I think the, again, the best place to go get this background knowledge, if you're really brand new to automation, is go to our website. We have over 145 case studies from every application and in every industry around the world. And you can get a very, very good sense of how to get started just by perusing these case studies and look at parallels to the business
0: that you're in. Joe Campbell, Universal Robots North America, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks, Jim, really appreciate the time. And thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time on Manufacturing the Future.